Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series, The Triumph of the Lamb, today with a message entitled, Who's In and Who's Out? So let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 21, verses 5 to 8, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. We've all heard the fabled line in the end of a book, and they all lived happily ever after. Now, from my vantage point, any book that actually ends in that way is really not worth reading. Now, that's because, well, in a book of that sort, you know, perhaps our two would-be lovers finally fall in love. But as you know, love requires a lifetime of nurture and adventure and commitment. Or perhaps in a book of this sort, you know, evil is finally vanquished. But, but in reality, in order for evil to be permanently vanquished, one has to have a pretty good idea of what constitutes justice in a good society, that kind of thing. You know, as we're getting close to the end of the Bible and of the book of Revelation, and we can see that the story of our redemption really isn't, and they lived happily ever after. I mean, for starters, we will notice from our passage that not everyone lives happily ever after. There are, according to our passage, those who conquer, and there are those who are banished outside of the city. And furthermore, Revelation's still not over. The book doesn't end by declaring that God made a new heaven and a new earth and then leave it at that. Yeah, it describes the new heaven and the new earth, and then it ends with an invitation and then a warning. That is to say, the Bible does not end its grand story by leaving us with a fable and saying, you see, I knew everything was just going to work out. See, rather, by telling us the end of the story, the Bible is inviting us to join into the battle of the faithful, to enter into the great warfare of the present hour and not to give up. That's because everyone who thinks everything is just going to work out We're all going to live happily ever after. Well, they just haven't understood the book. We've come to Revelation 21, and up till now, we've read the utter collapse of evil and the great triumph of the Lamb. We've witnessed the judgment seat, and we have seen the old created order melt before the one who is seated on the throne. And we've seen as John declares that in the new heaven and the new earth, all tears are wiped from every eye, and death has become a thing of the past. And if this were a story of they lived happily ever after, well, I guess that's where our Bible would end. But it doesn't end there, does it? So let's read what comes next. I'm reading Revelation 21, verses 5 to 8. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, since back in verse 1, John says that he saw a new heaven and a new earth, it strikes the reader now to be somewhat strange that we come now to verse 5, and it begins, Behold, I am making all things new. Now, John has a method in this seeming redundancy, and here's why. You know, for one, if you're paying keen attention to the book of Revelation, you might have noticed that throughout the entire book, God almost never speaks. I mean, we did see God speak way back in chapter 1, verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, the only other possible place where God speaks in this book is in chapter 16, verse 17, 
in which we are told there came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. But as it is plain to see, that voice can't absolutely be identified with a father. I mean, that voice might have come from one of the angels that surround the throne. So I think it is only safe to say that the book of Revelation opens and God speaks once, saying that he's the beginning of the end, the one who controls everything. And now here, as the book closes, the father speaks again, not just once, but three times. And that's significant. Notice he speaks in verse 5, where it starts with, and he was seated on the throne said. Then go halfway down in verse 5, you'll find also he said. And then the third thing the father says is recorded in verses 6 to 8, which begin with the words, and he said to me, that is, after the father makes two grand announcements, he speaks personally with John. Well, that's because John is a prophet and he's a preacher. And he wants the preacher to make sure that when he's preaching to God's people about all of this revelation, that John includes what is said in verses 6 to 8. And so if we're going to outline the passage before us, we should do it by the three times the Father speaks. First, the Father makes a declaration. Second, the Father insists that John write down the declaration. And third, the Father also insists that John apply this declaration to the lives of God's people. So let's start with the Father's declaration. After John says he saw the new heavens and the new earth, the Father now breaks in and he speaks. And that's because what we have in chapter 21, verse 1, is just a vision. Remember, that hasn't happened yet. John sees that it will happen in the future. But here someone might respond by saying, but, you know, will that vision come true? And with that, the Father makes a declaration. I am making all things new. Now look, we have to understand that the Father is speaking. Well, I don't know about you, but I know that there are times in my life, shamefully, but I have promised something and I didn't come through. I'm not proud of that, but it is a true depiction of what I've done. But the Father never says anything that does not come to pass. Listen to Numbers 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? So please remember that God merely spoke, and the universe came into being. In a number of the prophetic writings, God speaks about a future event. He does so using the past tense. It's, It's God saying to us that when he declares something about the future, you know, it's as good as yesterday's news. And so after John sees the vision of the new heavens and the new earth, God now speaks. He declares that he puts his name and his reputation behind his announcement. He declares that he will indeed make all things new. But then, as we've noted, God commands John to write this down. These words are to be among a written document that God's people have access to and they can return to over and over again. In this written declaration, God affirms that he intends to keep his word. Indeed, when God's people review this promise, they are to remember the one who's made it. That is, we've all heard of contracts that aren't worth the paper they're written on. But not so with this promise. This promise says God is both trustworthy and true. Now, the word translated as trustworthy comes from the same root word as we get our English word faith. These words, says God, are faithful words. It's the same word that Jesus used in Matthew 25, verse 21. It's part of the parable of the talents in which, I mean, you might remember, Jesus told a parable about a man who went on a journey and he entrusted his servants with a part of his property. 
And one of the servants used the property wisely, and while the master is gone, actually doubled the master's profit. And so when the master comes home and finds out how wisely the servant has invested, the master says to him, well done, good and, listen to this, good and faithful servant. In other words, you've proved yourself to be reliable. That's what faithful means. And so one way we can translate the word faithful is by using the word reliable. That is, God is reliable and true. And interestingly enough, you know, Paul used that very same word in, in 2 Timothy 2 verse 11. Now that passage begins with the words, the saying is trustworthy. You know, the Greek simply says, this is a word in which you can have faith. That is, this is a word that you can count on. Well, such is the case with the promise of the new heavens and the new earth. It's not a vain hope. It's more secure than your bank account. It's more secure than your investments. It's more secure than your hard assets. For those can all fail you, but this word will never fail. This word is the only solid ground upon which anyone can stand. And then God adds one more thing. This promise is not only faithful, that is reliable, it's true. So why add that? You know, one lexicon says that the word truth is in accordance with historical fact. That is to say, if you say, you know, for instance, you know, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, well, you can look up the historical records and you can establish with certainty the truth of that statement. This is the nature of God's promise. Once the promise is made, once God utters it out of his mouth, the security of that statement stands firm. You can go back and you can research every single promise of God and find that every one of them have stood the test of time. Every one was done. See, while it is true that the present order of things will pass away, notice that it's therefore foolhardy to place your investments in this world. And it's equally true that the new heavens and the new earth will endure forever. It's true words. God has spoken. That word cannot be revoked. That word cannot be broken. It may sound early to be planning for a winter retreat in 2020, but now is the time to make sure your spot is guaranteed for the 2020 Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again Southern Caribbean Cruise. Join us February 7th to 16th, 2020 for nine nights aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas, visiting Aruba, Curaçao, Bonaire, and more. Not only will you enjoy the beauty of the Caribbean, but throughout the trip you'll be enriched and challenged by the insightful Bible teaching of Dr. John Newfeld, experience laughs and encouragement with Laugh Again's own Phil Calloway, and enjoy special inspirational music, all while being hosted by our ministry team. So register now or find out more by visiting backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Now don't delay, we're looking forward to seeing you on board. We've noticed that in Revelation 21 verses 5 to 8, God speaks three times. The first is the promise He makes, the new heaven and the new earth are certainly coming. The second is God's insistence that these words be written down so that first they're established and that second that we, the elect of God, have a written contract with God and we can return to that contract and examine it over and over again. But God's not through speaking. 
There's a third thing he wants to say. This word is directed specifically at John. Remember, John's both a prophet and a preacher, and we might add, by extension, this is a word that's given to every gospel preacher throughout the ages who will declare these words in days to come. So look again at verses 6 to 8. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So look closely at the words we've just read. So you're going to notice that God is telling John to address his words to three different groups of people. The first group are those who are thirsty. The second group are those who are conquerors. And the third group are those who are cowardly. These are the words that must be spoken to all three groups. So I take it that the thirsty are those who are considering the words of God. They are, if you will, those people whom the preacher seeks to evangelize. They're thirsty because they know that what they presently have is not satisfying. It's it's not life-giving. And if that's you, consider why it is that you are thirsty. You're thirsty because everything you have will one day be taken from you. You're thirsty because your search for meaning, your search for significance, and your search for what constitutes the good life, well, it's all going down a dead end. All that you're pursuing is coming to nothing. You're thirsty because everything you've ever lived for has not satisfied you. If you're living for love, all that you now love and all that you will one day love will cease to be. Your loves will be snatched from you and they will be nothing. If you're living for pleasure, listen, my friend, your pleasures are fleeting. They're meaningless. And if you're living for money and all that money can acquire for you, including comfort and power, that well, the day is going to come when you're going to lie on your deathbed when all that money will be meaningless. You know, I once heard someone asking of a certain individual who they heard had passed away. They said, you know, did that individual die penniless? And I had to smile. Listen, we all die penniless. You acquired all your money through sacrifice, and some of you, well, you even acquired all you have by selling out your soul. And yet here you are. All you have is slipping through your fingers, and you will die penniless. Are you thirsty? Is your soul parched? Are you looking to be filled with what's eternal? Listen to two voices, the first of an ancient prophet named Isaiah, the second, the voice of Jesus. So let's start with Isaiah, Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. <laughs> exactly. In your foolishness, you spent your life working for that which does not satisfy and your thirst is not quenched. Listen now to the voice of Jesus recorded in John 4, 13 and 14. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So how about it? How about giving up everything you have for the water of eternal life? Don't you see? What you now have isn't satisfying, and it's going to be taken from you. Trade it in for what's eternal. That's God's message to you. And furthermore, if you're a Christian preacher or a teacher, don't you see? This is how you are to speak to God's people 
appeal to them on the basis of their thirst and their hunger, their dissatisfied heart, and explain that their hearts are restless because their hearts recognize what they presently have is not worth the effort they have placed in acquiring it. Tell them to let it go and to find eternity in Christ's kingdom. Well, the second message God wants John to convey is to the one who conquers. To the one who conquers, says God the Father, I will give this heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son. And did you notice the passage doesn't say to the one who believes, nor does it say to the one who has asked Jesus to come into her heart and cleanse him or her from his or her sins. Now, listen, of course, we enter into the kingdom of God through faith and through faith alone. We're we're not saved by what we do, but by trusting in what Christ has done on our behalf. But from that truth has also come a lie. To some, believing is a mere intellectual exercise, even worse. For some, believing is a one-time thing, something they did at one punctiliar moment in time. And ever since that moment, they've been faithless, haven't followed Jesus. They're not engaged in a great spiritual warfare that lies before them. Listen to what Jesus said to the seven churches which began this book. To Ephesus, he said, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. To the church of Smyrna, he said, to the one who conquers, who will not be hurt by the second death. To the church of Pergamum, he said, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. To the church of Thyatira, he said, to the one who conquers and one who keeps my works until the end, I will give him authority over the nations. To the church of Sardis, he said, to the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. And to the church in Philadelphia, he said, to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And finally, the church of Laodicea, he said, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. See, the idea that we can believe in Jesus without being engaged in a struggle to overcome the world and the flesh and the devil, well, that idea is foreign to the Bible and to the teaching of Jesus. If you believe, you will believe. And if you believe, you will be engaged in a fight. You'll fight against complacency in your own soul. You'll fight against the love of this world, and you'll fight against the one who seeks to do evil in this world. But not just fight. You're going to conquer. For to believe truly is to overcome the world. And that is what every faithful preacher must also say. Don't you be deceived by a gospel of easy believism, preachers must say. Take Jesus at his word, and for the sake of the kingdom, take up your cross and follow him. You'll have to trust him to do that. But that's what it is to believe. Believers conquer, and unbelievers are conquered. Conquer in the name of Jesus. Now then, the Father has one more thing he wants John to emphasize. Look again at verse 8. It's a word for those who are neither hungry nor are they believers. Verse 8 says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, and so forth, theirs is the lake of fire. See, I want you to notice the synonyms for unbelief. First, coward. Now that's these people lack the courage to suffer hardship and death for the name of Christ. Second, faithless. You know, that can mean two things. It means that you don't believe and you don't trust Jesus, that his words are true. But it also means that you can't be counted on to remain true to Christ. 
When the day of suffering comes, you flee away. You're faithless. Third, detestable. Now, that word can also mean polluted. It refers to those who polluted themselves by worshiping the beast and receiving his mark. Fourth, murderers and the sexually immoral and sorcerers. I mean, I put all of that into one group. It's a reference to Revelation 9, verse 21. It refers to those people who would not give up their worship of demons and says Revelation 9, 21, nor did they repent of their what? Murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality. That is to say, in spite of God's warning, these people will not repent of their sins. Wow. Fifth, idolaters. You know, those who love something more than they love Christ in his kingdom. Their life's taken up in all sorts of other loves, and they've set their hope on them, and they have not set their hope on Christ. And finally, liars are those who will not live in God's truth. So here's the message. You're either in or you're out. If you truly believe, you're going to repent of your sins. You're going to repent of your love for this world, and you're going to throw yourself fully onto the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to believe. And if you will not turn from your sin to Christ, well, that's all that's left for you is the place of the lake of fire. These are the true words of God. See, the Bible doesn't end with, they lived happily ever after. It ends with a warning and with a challenge. John, you and I have met many people, I think, that that struggle with understanding, do they have salvation? Are they one of the conquerors that you mentioned? And and I guess I'd ask the question, how do we know that we've conquered? Yeah, and and I think what's very important now to not become works-oriented, Ben. So, such an important question. I mean, we conquer in Christ. I mean, Christ conquers on our behalf. We conquer by refusing to take our eyes off of Christ. We continue to trust that what he has done is sufficient. You see, the, the, the one who doesn't conquer uh, stops being confident in Christ's action on his or her behalf. So uh, I know that we're in a massive battle and we will continue to be in one until Christ comes again. We, we do know that, but at the same time, we need to recognize that the work that we do is done through Christ. He works in and through us. And in the end, we count on what he has accomplished. So it is a matter of faith. Conquering and faith go hand in hand. Thanks so much for joining us today. And thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Revelation 18 to 22 is the passage of Revelation that I will focus on in my fourth and final volume of my series, The Triumph of the Lamb, which chronicles the end of the present age and the creation of a new age in which sin and death and sorrow and evil are forever vanquished. Step away from the uncertainty of life and allow the book of Revelation to present a message of certain hope like no other. As this is the final volume of this series, we want to make it available to you on CD for only $19 or the entire four-volume series for only $75. Either choice includes shipping and taxes. And remember, the entire series can also be heard online at backtothebible.ca or by downloading or subscribing to our Back to the Bible Canada mobile app or podcast. 
To receive your CD series or offer a gift to support this ministry, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.